Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, my name is Suzanne Spradley. I'm an attorney with NFP, and welcome to the NFP Election Podcast Series. We've been using the series to bring to you various topics related to the election, and today we're going to touch on an issue that's a bit loosely connected to the ele- election, but it relates to the pandemic and business interruption insurance coverage. And I have with me today Aaron Zaja, who heads up litigation for NFP. We are going to start by walking through litigation on business interruption coverage, and then I will provide an overview of some state activity and federal activity on this same. So to start with, Aaron, if you could give me a brief description of business interruption coverage. Commercial property policyholders have submitted claims throughout the country for business interruption based on closures from COVID-19. And the claims are generally for business income loss and extra expenses that have been incurred due to closures of the premises because of the presence of the virus or those governmental shutdown orders. Insurance companies have almost universally denied the claims and have cited primarily to the fact that the presence of the virus does not meet the requirement that there be direct physical loss or damage at the covered uh, covered property. So this has prompted the filing of hundreds of, of cases throughout our state and federal courts challenging those coverage denials. So so what are you seeing in terms of the volume? Is it, you say hundreds, has it been uh, 200, 300? I mean, what, what are we really seeing in terms of volumes as it relates to litigation? Well, maybe I should have changed hundreds to thousands uh, because actually there's approximately 1,100 lawsuits that are currently pending in state and federal court, 50% of which were filed as class actions. So obviously there was a really dramatic influx of new complaints coming through out the summer. Um, for example, during May, we were seeing approximately 70 cases uh, in which the denial of those business interruption claims were were denied. Um, And now we're seeing that there's been a tapering off of the volume. Uh, And so we will expect to see some continuous activity throughout the course of 2020, uh, but there certainly is a leveling off at this point. So what, from the policyholder's perspective, are you seeing as the central argument in these cases? Is there any commonality in their arguments? Yeah, absolutely. So for the most part, these complaints assert that um, there is coverage under their policy for business income loss and extra uh, extra expenses. And it is primarily based on things like the suspension of operations from physical loss or damage at the premises, which would be covered under business income coverage, for example or government orders based on physical loss or damage around their premises causing a suspension of operations, which would be civil authority coverage. We're seeing some arguments around dependent property, which is this this notion that the policyholder relies on materials or services, and then they weren't able to get those material or services because there was physical loss or damage at the dependent property, uh, and that would be dependent property coverage. And then on a smaller scale, we're seeing um, ingress and egress coverage claims coming through on those complaints as well. So walk me through this idea of physical loss or damage in these policies. What are you seeing in these lawsuits? Well, 
most property and casualty policies that have um, a business interruption coverage provision require that there's physical loss or damage in conjunction with the loss. But what the plaintiffs are alleging is that the virus is a physical substance, that it lives on and is active on inert physical surfaces, and that it's emitted in the air. And so as a result, the physical presence of the virus actually renders physical property unsafe and unusable, and that therefore the plaintiffs were forced to suspend or reduce their business at the covered premises because of this physical loss. To a lesser extent, we're also seeing some plaintiffs arguing that the forced closure itself is sufficient to trigger coverage because it directly affects the use of the property. But this key difference in plaintiff argument has resulted in divergent outcomes because early dispositive motion practice has demonstrated that that latter argument uh, is being largely unsuccessful. So what is the common response from the carriers in relation to this physical damage claim? Well, the insurer defendants are basically hammering the point that physical damage is physical damage. That common sense meaning of the term that people just sort of instinctively understand. Physical damage is fire, it's floods, it's wind damage. So the insurers are really focused on that direct physical requirement that's expressly stated in the policies. And I'll note, they're actually a a really extensive, fairly longstanding body of case law that points in favor of the insurers in this argument. For example, probably 20 years old at this point, Roundabout Theater Company versus Continental Casualty, it, it came out of New York, and it held that under New York law, the language of a policy clearly and unambiguously provided business interruption coverage only where the insured's property suffered direct physical damage. So the carriers are really capitalizing on this and are really pushing to have plaintiffs explain how the novel coronavirus could cause physical damage to property as opposed to making individuals ill with COVID-19 infection. And the carrier's other argument is sort of that same common sense approach, that it's that the insured's property wasn't damaged as a result of coronavirus. It was caused by governmental stay-at-home orders. So how successful are these carriers with this argument? Well, for the most part, the carriers have been quite successful with these arguments. By and large, uh, cases are getting dismissed through early motion practice. And frankly, the carrier uh, is getting an assist from courts in the non-COVID cases. So for example, the 11th Circuit recently decided a case called Mama Joe's versus Sparta Insurance Company. Uh, It came out in the middle of August, 2020. And in that case, a Florida restaurant argued that road construction required it to clean and repaint and repair superficially its buildings. And that cleaning and repainting ultimately satisfied the direct physical loss requirement. The 11th Circuit disagreed and held that cleaning was not enough. So while a non-COVID decision, Mama Joe's will certainly feature prominently in any COVID litigation, particularly COVID litigation arising out of the 11th Circuit. And so for our viewers, where is the 11th Circuit? What states does that encompass? That would include many of the Southern states. Have there been any cases in which the plaintiff won or was successful in this argument? Yes, um, but I think ultimately that depends on your definition of what a win is. There hasn't been a tremendous number of cases where a substantive ruling 
has actually been issued so far. In fact, there's only been about 30 decisions uh, on those early filed motions. And a few plaintiffs have certainly survived the, the motions to dismiss. So for example, you've got Kansas District Court in Orlando. You've got a few cases, I believe, in state court in New Jersey that have allowed the policyholders to move forward with their cases. And, you know, this is to say that these plaintiffs haven't won the case, right? What they're basically saying is that the plaintiffs have plausibly alleged that the coronavirus was a physical substance that attached to and damaged properties that would have rendered them unsafe. So clearly not a ruling on the merits, um, however, and the Kansas City judge, who I believe was one of the first ones to come out um, with this decision, was quick to note the denial of the motion to dismiss did not determine that coverage was owed. It was meant only to show that accepting the pleaded facts and the lawsuit is true. The court believed that there was some argument to be made for coverage, which was is basically the threshold to survive a motion to dismiss. These cases, the insured must still survive a motion for summary judgment, um, and going to have to ultimately establish that there's coverage at trial. So there's a lot of hurdles for the plaintiff to still overcome. And while the insurers have certainly garnering some um, substantive decisions uh, on their end, to date, there has only been one decision that provided a substantive win to the holder. And that's a decision that just came out October 7th. It's out of Durham, North Carolina. Uh, and it handed down what the nation is being described as the nation's first dispositive ruling in favor of policyholders. And it held that the closure orders that restricted the use of the plaintiff's 16 restaurants actually did constitute mm. a physical loss that was covered by the policy. What's interesting about this decision is that it all sort of rested on the word or. The judge wrote that Cincinnati's argument that the policies require uh, would require physical alteration conflates physical loss and physical damage. The judge was focused on the use of the conjunction or, and basically said that a reasonable insurer could understand that the term physical loss or physical damage would have a distinct and separate meaning. Hudson's decision is, is different than other rulings thus far. It, I'll also note that while finding that the policyholders were afforded coverage, uh, this is being challenged by Cincinnati uh, in appeal. And so this is far from over. And what is your opinion of that decision? Do you think it's well-reasoned? Can you see it catching on in other courts? Or do you think that it was really an outlier? Well, at this point, it's pretty early to tell, right? Because there have only been 30 decisions. And so I think the fact that you get a decision that rests on the term or probably makes people think this is all the things that are wrong with the legal practice, right? That this one word is going to cause everything. And uh, it certainly doesn't resonate as much as the physical loss requirement cases that simply say physical loss has a common sense understanding. But that linguistic exercise of differentiating physical loss and physical damage is actually consistent with what the UK courts are looking at. Mm. Well, it is an anomaly in the US decision. It is not outside the box thinking in terms of, for, for example, the U United Kingdom decisions. Well, I want to get to the UK, but before we do, I want to walk through just the idea of um, class actions. You said that over half of the lawsuits were being brought as a class action. Do you expect to see any consolidation of these cases? 
Well, actually, a federal panel of judges recently decided against consolidation of hundreds of business interruption lawsuits. Um, the panel concluded the difference among the, the insurers would overwhelm any common factual questions and as a result would hinder efficient management of the litigation. I think that reasonable minds can differ as to whether or not consolidation under a multi-district panel would actually be more efficient. But these judges ultimately thought that having one judge attempt to organize and resolve all of these competing policy interpretations would be too cumbersome. And then the course of action was to allow the various courts where these lawsuits have been filed to decide these questions uh, on more of a one-off basis. It does seem somewhat of a local issue mm-hmm. um, in regard to the pandemic, but let's switch let's switch topics and move over to Canada and the UK. Give me an idea of what's happening there. Sure. Canadian courts are seeing a significant number of cases similar to the United States, um, but unlike the United States where we have focused on dispositive motion practice early on, Canada seems to be focusing more on the identification of classes. So for example, denturist class, summer camp owner classes. And that has been what has been driving the court practice currently in the Canadian jurisdictions. The UK is a completely different ballgame, and policyholders have been faring much better in the UK than their US counterparts. There was a British High Court heard, I think most people are familiar with it, it was a test case that was brought by the UK's Financial Conduct Authority to determine whether 21 sample insurance policies covered business interruption losses that arose in the context of COVID. And the FCA was representing the interests of a large number of policyholders who had purchased policies, most of whom were small or mid-sized companies. The high court found that a number of representative business interruption insurance policies will cover financial losses caused by COVID. The key rulings included this notion that insured peril should be broadly construed. Um, They decided that the majority of disease clauses and hybrid clauses would cover COVID-19 losses and prevention of access and similar clauses may provide for coverage in a more narrow localized COVID loss situation. Now, notably the court made no finding of fact as to where COVID-19 had occurred or the impact on a particular business, which will be issues that had to be considered on a case-by-case basis. But the judgment did provide that coverage was available for COVID-19 business interruption losses under the most policy wording, um, under most policy wordings at issue. So as a result, it was highly anticipated, completely expected that the insurance companies would challenge the judgment in a fast-track leapfrog appeal to the Supreme Court of the UK. Just last week, however, six of the insurance companies subject to the judgment decided not to pursue an appeal in connection with some of those policies. And one of the insurers actually stated that it would instead begin to make payments where appropriate. It's an incredible turn that shows that UK insurers are, are now willing to pay for such losses, at least in some cases, as opposed to litigating in a court at the appellate level where they may risk much bigger exposures. And obviously this is a dramatically different approach than what we're seeing in the US. Uh, And it seems like this is a topic we could really uh, unpack for days because I question, you know, how similar are the policy languages between the UK policies and the US policies? And uh, is the case law typically in line in the UK with the US with um, how policies have um, been interpreted in the courts? Um, But for now, I guess we'll leave it at that and watch for further developments, both um, in domestically and in Canada and the UK. And 
If there are any future developments in this area, Aaron, we'd like to bring you on for a future podcast um, to address these issues. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would love to do that, Suzanne. And, and I understand that there's been a, a tremendous amount of activity at the uh, state level as well. There has. So I wanted to just address briefly what's been going on at the states. And really, it's been happening in two different tranches. We have some states that have proposed legislation that would effectively rewrite um, business interruption coverage and require, in some instances, to retroactively apply the coverage back into the March timeframe. There are 10 states plus the District of Columbia. Those states are California, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, Rhode Island, South Carolina. And we, um, in all of those situations, they do limit it in terms of a small employer, but they define small employer differently from 100 employees to 250 employees. Um, but we do want to watch that because it would um, effectively rewrite the coverage and say that uh, an insurer is required to cover these policies and pay out on these policies, regardless of the actual language in the policy itself. So um, none of these uh, proposals have made it through the legislative uh, process, and we expect any type of um, enactment of these legislations to have significant pushback. Um, but we will watch and, of course, update um, our clients on these matters. And secondly, there's another tranche of legislative efforts that's on the other side of some of these states that is really friendly towards businesses, and it's in some form of immunity. Um, many of the state uh, actions started out with immunity for healthcare workers in the facilities. Um, they've now gone beyond that and provided immunity for, for businesses generally. Uh, we do have all of this information on our website out, outlined in our COVID-19 resources. But the states that have taken action to protect businesses include Georgia, Iowa, Kansas, Louisiana, Wyoming, Utah, Tennessee, Oklahoma, North Carolina, Mississippi, Nevada, um, as well. And governors in Arkansas and Alabama signed executive orders to do the same. So again, you can find more information on this under our resources. And lastly, I just want to mention at the federal level, there have been proposals similar to TRIA. Um, one such proposal is the Pandemic Risk Insurance Program. Um, but none of these proposals uh, pertain to current pandemic relief, and it all, it all applies to future types of pandemics. And so um, we don't anticipate that anything will move along those lines this year, and it's not going to be at the forefront of either administration's agenda following the election. So we will update, but I don't expect any relief on that anytime soon. Lastly, I will mention, of course, um, in the stimulus talks, the Republicans have been pushing for some type of liability protection. And as we all know, those those talks have stalled. They're on and and off, and, and it's uh, anyone's guess if we will be able to move on any type of stimulus package before the election. Um, but hopefully in the future there will be, and, and if it's up to the Republicans, there will be some type of liability relief included within that package. So for now, I think that uh, we will close out this podcast, Aaron. Thanks again for joining us, and we will provide future updates on not only litigation, but state and federal activities as well. Thank you, Aaron, for joining us. Thank you for having me, Suzanne. Thanks for listening to the latest episode in our new Washington Update 2020 election mini-series. We will keep you informed and up-to-date on the candidates and their platforms as we get closer to the presidential election. 